welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Third Battle of Ypres, better known as Passchendaele, exploring how this infamous battle unfolded and why it remains so controversial to this very day. Hello, Dan. It's great to have you on the podcast again, where we're going to be discussing what might be said to be perhaps the most controversial British and, by extension, British Empire battle of the First World War. And of course, that's Third Ypres, more commonly known as Passchendaele. I know you, just as I have, been on this ground many times and I think of all the battles that the British fought on the Western Front, when we go to Ypres and when we explore this battle, the whole area is still absolutely pregnant with this kind of feel of sacrifice. Memorials in every corner, the Menin Gate, of course, is a centrepiece of Ypres. And of all the tours that I've been on, I find that the members of the tour tend to have the strongest emotional reaction actually around the Menin Gate. So I think it's fair to say this is a battle that still casts a very long shadow. Yeah, hi Spence. I mean, hugely, I'm in total agreement with you. When it comes to the Battle of Passchendaele, and I think by extension the Ypres salient in general, you know, it's just got something special about it, whether it's the town centre, whether it's being out on the old front lines, which are largely speaking in the same places for a fairly significant period of time, really only 1918 that they shift significantly. But as a result of that, you've got these kind of layers of history which have been plastered over one another. And that's what I love about the Ypres salient in particular. Stand on the same field, you could talk about a battle that was fought there in 1914, 1915, and again in 1917 without moving. It's a, it's a remarkable place. And the town of Ypres has always been something of a, a mecca, really, for British and Commonwealth particularly. Canadian and Australians coming over to the Ypres salient. It's, it's a really regular thing. And, and this battle, I think, really is the crowning piece, um, probably for the wrong reasons when it comes to the Ypres salient. Mm. One of the things I find interesting, though, I mean, we've perhaps uh, rather easily, perhaps too easily, called this the Battle of Passchendaele that we're covering today. And this has been a, a source of contention for quite a few years. I know some purists will say it's the third Battle of Ypres. And, uh, of course, they'd technically be right. Yes, they would. And the very name, Third Battle of Ypres, just gives weight to what you've just said about the fact that around the Ypres salient you can stand on a piece of ground and tell the story of multiple battles, each taking place in a different year, which I think is a really powerful way of saying the front line in this area just doesn't move much until 1918. And in fact, depending on how you calculate it, there's at least three battles of Ypres. There might be as many as five if you actually count the two battles in 1918. And so we have this idea that this is an area of the front that doesn't move. It doesn't move very much. Now, you might say, well, that's an indication of the futility and the stupidity of fighting in this area. But I'd actually rephrase that, or I'd invite you to think about that differently and say it's actually an indication of how important this area is and how ferociously it's been fought over, beginning in 1914, continuing to 15. Unusual lull in 1916. In fact, 1916 is the only year of the war where there's no major battle at Ypres. And it's actually largely because the Germans choose to attack at Verdun. Their other option was to attack at Ypres in 1916. And then, of course, we come to the third battle in 1917. So this is a strategically pivotal area, and that's why we have so many battles fought 
in this region. And it's why it's such a rewarding battle to study, such a rewarding battlefield to walk, I think. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. And and just going on, I think, to really understand the ground in the first place and understand what the Ypres salient is, because I'm sure there'll be many people listening to this who know exactly what the Ypres salient is. And maybe others thinking, oh, perhaps that's not quite so clear. And when I'm on the battlefield, there's always one thing that I like to do, and it's maybe a little bit simplistic, but I, I think it can serve, hopefully over podcast as well, as a way of understanding what the ground is like. And try and think of it this way. So imagine Ypres being a pond kind of surface, fairly flat. In fact, the Flanders Plain is very flat. And if you were to take a, a pebble and drop that in the center of a pond, you would get a series of ripples radiating out away from the center. In that sense, you can call the center Ypres, the town of Ypres. And the ripples, if we're talking only to the north, east, and south, radiating out from there are going to be the three major ridges, which in effect look down on the town of Ypres itself. The first one of those being the Pilkham Ridge, the second one being the Brudsin Ridge, and the third and final one of which the battle ultimately takes its name being the Passchendaele Ridge. And it's the control of those three ridges which is going to be absolutely vital to the fighting in and around Ypres. And it's going to be why there are, believe it or not, 25% of all British casualties in the Great War are suffered within this six-mile front or something along those lines. Staggering numbers of casualties for a pretty small area. But the question is, why do we need to even be holding that pebble in the pond in the first place? And that's a really big one. Yes, it is. And it speaks to the reasons why there are so many so much intense fighting in this region. Ypres is sometimes said to be largely a symbolic city, and it certainly carries a symbolic element because it's one of the few major urban areas that Belgium retains after the German invasion in 1914. But it's also strategically extremely important. When we think about it, I'm going to steal your brilliant metaphor about the pebble in the water here, Dan, and turn it into a different way. When we think about where Ypres sits in northern Belgium and where one can go to from Ypres, I like to draw the comparison of a wagon wheel with Ypres in the centre and spokes running off it to all the major important ports that run along both the Belgian coast and the French coast. So that includes ports that perhaps are more familiar from the Second World War, Dunkirk, Calais and Boulogne. And so control of Ypres gives whoever has it access to good roads that lead to all these important strategic ports. And so it has this great strategic value. And in fact, the reason the First Battle of Ypres is fought is the Germans in 1914 in October are trying to break through the last remnants of Belgian resistance with the idea of advancing onto the channel ports of Dunkirk, Calais and Boulogne. And British, Indian, French and Belgian troops fight tooth and nail to stop them at the First Battle of Ypres. By 1917, though, the, the, the other options for Ypres are available because those wagon spokes radiating from Ypres also lead to German-occupied ports in Belgium. And from those German-occupied ports, they can operate coastal-class U-boats and they can operate destroyers and torpedo boats that are a threat to British shipping too. So if you go in the opposite direction on the spokes, you start coming to places like Ostend and Zeebrugge, which are very much of interest to the Allies to liberate. So. Whoever controls Ypres and can expand out from it is in a great, uh, very strong position to attack in either direction. But to actually do that, they have to control those ridges, don't they, Dan? They do. So the ridges control Ypres. Ypres controls either the ports to the west or the ports to the north, which are in German hands. So the stakes are high on both sides. We should just maybe reiterate 
right here, though, just how high those stakes are from a British point of view. Because, as you know, all of the supplies and resources and manpower is all coming from the UK. And it means it's all got this weak point it's got across, which is the English Channel. The reason Britain's had a huge navy for hundreds of years is the reason we pride ourselves on our navy. It's also potentially an enormous weak spot. So the Germans know if they can cut those supply lines, either in the sea itself or perhaps just in between the town of Ypres and the coast, they can sever the British ability not only to fight, but just to operate in and around Northwest Europe full stop. So if that area is not held, and Ypres is also the cork in the bottle to a certain extent, then you know the ramifications for losing control of those coastal ports, it, it, they're enormous, almost unfathomable from a point of view of the Western Front. Yes, they are. This is the one area of the Western Front, certainly from a British perspective and possibly even from an Allied perspective, although we might be pushing that a little too far, but certainly it's the only area of the Front for the British where a relatively short advance, it's only about seven miles, a little bit over seven miles from Ypres to the, to the last ridges, to Passchendaele, an advance of seven miles could possibly have dramatic strategic results. The British are able to capture those ridges, then they overlook the Germans, and there's no defensive positions the Germans can easily occupy once they've pushed off those ridges. They may have to fall back quite a long way. But the opposite is also true. If the Germans capture Ypres, if they drive through Ypres and they push the British beyond that, then once the British are pushed beyond the, some canals that are in that region, it's actually quite difficult to defend. There are some elements of high ground that become important in 1918, but otherwise there's a real risk that the, the next stop is going to be the channel ports. And so in this very condensed area, you only need a relatively short advance to have major strategic successes and implications. And the British cannot afford to lose the channel ports. They can't afford to have them threatened. And by 1917, when 3rd Deep is taking place, the Germans really don't want to lose their ports along the Belgian coast because, of course, they're undertaking the second great unrestricted submarine campaign. They've staked almost everything on this strategically. They need their submarine bases, their naval bases, to be operating at peak capacity to attack Allied shipping. They can't afford to lose their channel ports either. So the stakes are really high. And I contrast this a lot with the battle we discussed on the previous episode, which is the Somme, where, as we noted, even if the Allies break through on the Somme, there's not really anything incredibly important behind the Somme, but that's absolutely not the case at Ypres. No, you've you've got, of course, those those far distant and probably, let's be reasonable, unattainable objectives of chewing up and capturing those German U-boat ports. That's uh, I don't know how you feel about it, Spence. I'm not sure that was ever going to happen, even in the very best of scenarios. But there is also the town of today known as Rosselada. It's uh, Roulaire at the time, and it's a big important important German hub, really feeding German forces in that part of uh, Belgium and northern France. And if Roulaire gets taken, particularly the rail hub as well, that's going to cause some major issues to a German army who, let's face it, Spence, by 1917 are really starting to struggle on the manpower and resource side of things. Yes, they are. In fact, there's pretty grim economic predictions from Germany in 1917. In some ways, the only reason Germany has not had a a bigger economic problem at the end of 16 is they've overrun Romania. Romania's cropped up occasionally in our chats, and Romania enters the war disastrously in the autumn of 1916, gets overrun almost immediately by the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, and that allows the Central Powers to take the Romanian 
Wheat harvest, it's crucial, and it gives it access to Romanian oil, despite the very best efforts of British agents to sabotage those oil wells. And that props up the German economy through most of 1917, in fact. But on the home front, things are getting really difficult. The daily calorie ration in Germany falls to 1,300 calories a day around about mid-1917. Now, you can live on 1,300 calories a day. You might end up tightening your belt a little bit. But what we have to remember is this is not 1,300 good calories. Because of foodstuff shortages, things like meat, eggs, dairy products, very, very short supply. Germans are using ersatz bread, so they're filling out bread with any kind of substitute, in some cases sawdust. So it's filling, but it's not nutritious. It's a bit like having a diet, 1,300 calories, you eat, you eat three Mars bars every day. You might enjoy it for a little bit, but you're going to start having physical effects. So the, 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 the German army is permanently hungry through from mid-1917 onwards. Its rations are higher than civilian rations, but the quality of the food isn't much better either. They're still eating a lot of ersatz bread. Meat is, is pretty stringy and rare. So it's, it's tough already for the Germans. And if they were to lose that logistics hub beyond the ridges at Ypres, then that is disastrous. It's going to unhinge the entire logistic network in occupied Belgium. So stakes are extremely high. Yeah, and you know, just as you were talking about that, I was thinking, and if you haven't figured out by now, listeners, we do love a, a metaphor on here from time to time. I was just <laughs> thinking of uh, how uh, we once explained this out on the battlefields, actually, and it's almost you can take from a British perspective in 1916, take a, a Monopoly board, for example. Britain and her empire have hose, houses and hotels on pretty much everything, every single square on the Monopoly board. And the Germans have a hotel on Old Kent Road, if you're using the British version of the game. <laughs> so there's a lot of places they can't go to get resources. Really, I think Sweden is probably their, if you like, the, their biggest asset as far as a, a German food output goes. But Britain can call on and does from all over the empire. And this is going to have a, a real effect on the ground, actually. And just on a very simple basis, if you talk about feeding an ever-expanding army, giving them the energy and the ability to get forward and launch, let's face it, difficult assaults over very difficult ground. And that, in effect, is going to bring us to middle of 1917 because the Brits have picked up the mantle and they are going to be on the offensive. That's not really something the Germans can do. They certainly can't sustain at this point in the war. No, they can't. And in fact, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a future episode, but in the winter of 1916, German command sits down Navy and Army and essentially says, how can we win this war? Because 1916, which we covered in the previous episode, whatever the human cost to the Allies, it has ripped the initiative out of the German hands. They're on the back foot, they're fighting defensively, but they can't fight defensively indefinitely. They're just going to be ground down economically, militarily. They need something to turn the tide. And so there's this vast meeting at Pless Castle in Germany where they say, well, what's the policy for the new year? And the army's pretty blunt and says, we cannot win the war in 1917. We may win victories, particularly against the Russians, who are, are quite weak at this stage, but we're not going to win the war. We need the Navy to do something. And so the Navy rolls the dice and it decides it's going to try and starve Britain into submission with an all-out U-boat offensive, even though they know that will bring America into the war. It's discussed openly. The minutes of this meeting are still in existence. They know America will come into the war and they say, well, that's a risk worth taking. We think we can starve Britain in six months. I'm sure we'll cover that in another episode. And America won't be ready for a year. But the fact they're willing to roll the dice and take that gamble, I think, shows how desperate the German strategic position has become 
as a result of the fighting of 1916. It's willing to gamble everything on what in some ways, though it's not an untried weapon in the submarine, it's a very novel weapon. Bear in mind, the first uh, attacks on shipping from submarines only occur at the start of the First World War. And they're willing to bet everything on that. This nation that's famed for its army, its army's holding, of course, huge fronts across Europe, it has to rely on submarines instead. And that's an indication of how desperate things are becoming in the long term for the Germans. That's right. And, and these little things have been mounting up. And actually, we can see, I think, uh, at least some examples of how that type of thinking plays out on the Western Front. Because we do see that with a pretty big move, actually, in early 1917 on the German point of view. But surprisingly, it's a retrograde one. They're going backwards. Yes, this is true. So it's as a result of the casualties they've suffered in 1916, and especially the battering they've taken at the Battle of the Somme, you listen to our previous episode, you remember us discussing at the end of September, Germany's really getting hammered on the Somme. It's largely the weather that saves Germany from a more significant defeat there. And at the start of 1917, the German army essentially sits down and says, we cannot take another Somme battle like that. We've, we're not going to be drawn into this battlefront again. And so they make a decision to fall back to these carefully prepared defences it's the biggest voluntary retreat the Germans have made on the Western Front since the beginning of trench warfare. And they fall back to a, a position that in, in some ways will become notorious during the, the war. It's the Hindenburg Line, of course. It is indeed. So very, very, well, at least on paper, um, very highly and detailed construction goes into, goes into the works. Of course, it's worth bearing in mind, digging trenches when you're directly facing the enemy is a particularly difficult thing to do. But being able to fall back a few yard, a few miles and dig behind your own lines actually gives you a lot more opportunities to dig trenches in a more scientific manner and, and crucially, not under enemy fire, at least not any short range. And so the Hindenburg line is going to be constructed. It's going to ease up German manpower somewhat by shortening the line. It's going to make better use of terrain features. And the idea is it's going to provide a, something of a buffer zone that the German army can then fall back onto. At the same time, of course, they're well aware that the Allies are going to be making big pushes in that year. And in the spring, when, if you like, the campaigning season, it, it, there really is a campaigning season in the First World War, to my mind at least, when that kicks off, we're going to start with some big actions. The first of which is going to be, I think in some ways, one of the more tragic battles of many tragic battles in the Great War, because the ultimate reason for the battle, which the Brits today will call Arras, and the subsidiary battle to that, the assault on Vimy Ridge, both of which are going to be in their own way a diversionary attack. They're a diversion for an attack which goes horrifically badly. That's true. And this is the French assault along the line of the River Aisne. And a little bit of background to this. So we mentioned in the last episode that by the end of 1916, the Allies are quite happy with what they've done in a military sense. But politically, the leaders in both Britain and France are appalled by the human cost, the economic cost. They don't see much success as a result of the Battle of the Somme. And there's political changes in Britain and France. It brings David Lloyd George to power in Britain, and it leads to a change in France in that the commander of the French armies, Joseph Joff, has been in charge since 1914. He's a hero of France. He's replaced with this young upstart called Robert Nivelle, who's a hero of Verdun. He's got talent as a, as a junior commander. I think he's a very good brigadier, a very good divisional commander. But unfortunately, he's got an enormous ego, and his ego is far greater than his talent. And he's got this dangerous combination of an enormous ego, a lot of charisma, tells a convincing story, 
and he tells the French leadership that he's got a special way that's going to win the First World War. He's going to break open the Western Front in 48 hours, he promises. And the British and French armies will, in his words, reap a harvest of glory. And this is music to British and French politicians' ears. After all the horrors on the Somme in 1916, here comes this very superficially convincing officer. He is a hero of Verdun. He's got the secret. He's going to attack. He's going to tear open the German front using a new combination of uh, French tanks that are coming into action for the first time, specialist artillery bombardments, elite assault infantry. It's going to be a war-winning offensive. The problem is it isn't. It's, in fact, a disaster in many respects because the Germans are well aware it's coming. Nivelle's chosen one of the toughest nuts on the Western Front to crack, the Chemin de Dame, the heights above the River Aisne. Germans are well prepared for him. And he's also, he's stoked the fires of anticipation so bright and so hot that anything other than a decisive victory is going to feel very painful. The Battle of the Aisne is a, a, a real bloodbath for the French. One of the tragedies of it is, by French standards, it's not necessarily a complete failure. It captures some, some useful ground, but it takes heavy casualties. And crucially, it's not this breakthrough in 48 hours. And the spasm that follows within the French army is unprecedented because the French army, which has been blooded and battered and mauled, really, from 1914 onwards, it's suddenly had all its hopes raised by Nivelle. It's not worked. And the result is... Well, it's what some historians call a mutiny. It is indeed. And uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty, uh, if we're talking about football analogies now, you know, going back to the idea, Nivelle certainly talks a great game. Um, you could argue there's a pretty serious own goal scored at the end of this because, of course, the French army, in inverted commas, mutinies. Now, this is something that no doubt will go into a bit more detail in the future. It's not a mutiny in the sense that people walk away from the trenches, go home and say, I'm not going to get involved anymore. Rather, it's it's more of a refusal to advance. Uh, and this is something different. So and this quite often actually, Spence, is one of those things I think are totally incorrectly leveled at, at French military in the 20th century at any point, really, and that's to say that there's no spirit to fight. There absolutely is spirit to fight. There's spirit to fight in 1914, there is in 1915, and there is in 1917 as well. The failures, and there are plenty of them, are almost exclusively at the top. And the French army, en masse, not every unit, but a good chunk of them, in effect, refuse to advance. We'll man our lines, we'll defend against attacks, we'll hold the Western Front, but do not ask us to make any more offensive actions of this kind. And the, as you say, the ripples that go through the French army at this time are, are nothing short of enormous. And that once again brings the burden, if you like, in terms of offensive spirit at least, uh, to fall squarely on British shoulders or British and Commonwealth shoulders for the latter part of 1917. Yes, it does. Essentially, the French army is no longer fit for offensive operations, and we will cover this in the future, I'm sure, in more detail, but they're prepared to fight, defend their positions, hold the line, and if the Germans had attacked them, I'm sure they'd have fought very hard, but they're not prepared to be involved in any more offensives. They've had their fill of them. They've suffered so many casualties. They're not going to do it anymore. They're going to wait, wait for the Americans, wait for the development of more tanks, and only then will they be ready for action. And on top of this is the problems that are occurring on the Eastern Front too, because in Russia, Russia's had a very bloody war up until this stage too, suffered enormous casualties through 15, 16, and 14, of course. And in the spring of 1917, the Tsar abdicates. 
And that is a crushing blow to the Russian Imperial Army, because it's difficult for us to really imagine this now, because it's a, a different world, but Russia, the Russian army in 1917 owed enormous loyalty to the Tsar. It was the Tsar's army more so than it was the Russian nation's army. And for the vast mass of peasant soldiers who made up that army, they didn't really understand what they were fighting for in terms of democracy, in terms of representative government. That was just foreign language to soldiers who'd been conscripted from Central and Eastern Russia. And the disappearance of the Tsar tore the heart out of the Russian army in a way that wasn't really fully understood at the time and wouldn't be really felt, or the full effects wouldn't be felt until after the Bolshevik Revolution later in the year. But it meant that essentially the Russian army was now on life support. It was suffering mass desertions as peasant soldiers just left. They got nothing to fight for. It was becoming less a question of whether the Russians could participate in any offensives and more, could they just hold the line in the East? The British weren't fully aware of how bad things were in Russia, but they had an inkling of them. And so imagine the situation when you're assessing this from a British perspective. The French have mutinied. They're not going to attack anymore. The Russians are teetering. They've got serious problems. If you just sit aside as the British and say, we're not going to do anything, you open up both your allies to serious problems. If the Germans throw everything against the Russians, they could knock them out of the war. What if the Germans throw everything against the French? We know now the French were prepared to defend their positions, even if they weren't prepared to attack. But the British weren't completely convinced of that. All they knew was that there was serious disorder and ill-discipline in the French army. Can't really rely on them anymore. And so the British have to choose somewhere to actually attack and carry on the battle. And... That's a big ask. If you consider the Germans held off all three major allies and Italy in 1916 during the general offensive, you're now asking Britain and the British Empire to step up and say, do what four nations combined could not do in 1916. It seems almost an overwhelming ask. The strategic pressure to do it, of course. But there's also some positives that the British can draw on because the British army is not the British army of 1916, is it, Dan? Absolutely not. And there have been, as we spoke about in our previous episodes, actually, you know, there are certainly lessons learned. There are big improvements made um, at lower levels as well, I think, which is really crucial when it comes to battlefield tactics. Of course, none of these lessons have come free. They've been hard won and they've come at the cost of many, many lives that you still see throughout the Western Front to this day. But, and this is one of the big buts of the Great War, but lessons have been learned. There are new ways to do things. And one of the things I think that is uh, quite often spoken about, certainly amongst geeky military history circles like ours, <laughs> is British Army pamphlets in 1917. Spencer, I know you've got a copy somewhere within arm's reach of you. <laughs> I would imagine there's one somewhere. So tell us what we're talking about. Well, this is the celebrated SS series. Now, that's not the SS of the Second World War. Uh, this is actually a code for the stationary office of the British Army. And beginning in 1916, the army starts to produce these pamphlets that are all coded SS and then a number. And these are pamphlets. They're short. They're about A5 size, so you can fold them up, stick them in a, a jacket pocket that are full of tactical advice and tactical principles. There's a, a range of them covering every fighting arm you could think of. Artillery, tanks, engineers, sniping, mortars, machine guns, loads and loads and loads of them. But the big one that changes the whole way the British Army thinks and it acts and it fights is SS-143, 
which is essentially a pamphlet of platoon tactics because the British Army is moving, it's changing its organization from a system where everybody carried rifles. You every infantryman was a rifleman. Some would carry grenades as well. Some might wield a machine gun to now a platoon system where a platoon is about 30 men. It's broken into a series of sections. There's a HQ section. It's usually commanded by a second lieutenant, the youngest and most junior officer you can have, and some staff. Then it'll have a rifle section, so men with rifles who can shoot um, accurately and possibly go in with a bayonet if necessary. You'll have a hand grenade section called a bombing section. They're self-explanatory. They're going to throw lots of grenades to keep everyone's head down. You'll have a machine gun section. They're carrying a Lewis gun, which is a man-portable light machine gun known as the Belgian rattlesnake by the Americans. Rapid firing, easy to transport, can put down a good amount of fire. And you'll also have a rifle grenade section, which is a special uh, weapon. It's a rifle, but you fit a launcher on the end of it, and it allows you to fire a grenade about four times the distance that you could throw one. So with this platoon, you've got an all-arms unit. It's got machine gun, it's got some rifle grenades, which are something like mortars in our, our world. You've got hand grenades, you've got fighting men with rifles and bayonets, and you've got someone in charge of it. And as a unit, this is designed to deal with just about every problem it can encounter on the Western Front. It can overcome German positions, it can outflank or destroy German strong points, it can move forward. And of course, it's not going to operate individually. You've got dozens of platoons moving forward and cooperating with each other. You can combine multiple platoons, you can subdivide platoons. It's an incredibly flexible, useful, and well-armed infantry fighting unit. And in fact, it's so effective, it's still in use today. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, on a very miniature scale, it's almost the blueprint, the forerunner of the enormous combined arms battles that we see, and we'll cover in the next few episodes in 1918, which eventually unlock that stalemate of trench warfare on the Western Front and lead to victory, of course, in November 1918. This, I think, can be seen in, in many ways as a, a very small version of that. It's also worth pointing out as well that the rigidity that we see within structures like battalions in 1915 in particular has really kind of, uh, if not gone entirely, certainly the edges have been softened somewhat and you get more responsibility being devolved down to lower levels now. So you get platoon officers, company officers, and even non-commissioned officers able to take up far more responsibility on the battlefield and react flexibly. One of those things that we spoke about on the Somme last time out when that is a major issue, not being able to react flexibly to things on the battlefield. Now, there are also other big improvements, artillery being another one. There's so many things that we could cover here, Spence. I think that the trick is to try and pull out just those key ones when it comes to the Third Battle of Ypres. And with that in mind, I think that's where, because the British Army's eyes turned northwards towards Ypres in 1917, that's exactly what we need to be doing. And we need to figure out, actually, before Ypres happens, what needs to take place first? And the answer to that is, of course, the Messines Ridge. Yes, it is. So to bring the story up, the French mutiny, the British carry on the assault at Arras, which starts so promisingly, but then becomes a typical sort of meat grinder, bloodbath. It actually has the highest daily casualty rate of any major battle on the Western Front for the British. But then after that, with the Battle of Arras closed down, British eyes moved north. They want, if they're going to fight the Germans on their own, they want to attack the Germans where they can do the most damage, which is Ypres. But you made a great point, Dan, about Messines Ridge, because Messines Ridge is its like a thorn in the side of the British. The Germans actually captured Messines Ridge in 1914. It lies a little bit to the south of Ypres. 
But because of its position, because of its high ground, any offensive that the British are launching out of Ypres, the Germans are going to sit on their southern flank at Messines Ridge. They're going to see into the British flank. They're going to see into the British logistics areas. And they can fire into them in what is called enfilade, firing from the flank. And that's incredibly dangerous in the First World War. We mentioned this in the 1915 episode. Lots of people who get hit by machine gun fire are actually shot in the side. They're being hit from the flank. The Germans have got this absolute strong point on Messines Ridge. It's got to be eliminated before any Ypres offensive can begin. But the British have got a plan for that, haven't they, Dan? They have. And a bit of good news for a change, at least from a British perspective, there is a set piece attack, which I think you could argue, and I think with some justification, is perhaps one of the most successful set piece attacks of the entire Great War. And it allows us to bring in a subject that I find particularly fascinating, and that is tunnelling. Uh, so what we need to, in fact, what we should probably go back a couple of steps here, Spence, for anybody that's not been to the Ypres salient, we've used the word ridge about five times so far. I think if you went to Ypres and you looked at various areas, you'd be hard-pressed to find a ridge around there. Just to establish here that these ridges aren't very high at all. We're talking 50, 60 metres above above sea level in some cases, although there is a pronounced ridge at Messines in the southern sector. And it's beneath which the British, uh, with some significant contributions from Australians, are going to be tunnelling. Their intention here is to undermine, literally the popularisation of the word, by the way, in the First World War, to undermine enemy positions, to hollow out a series of cavities beneath key German strongpoints that they've already located using things like aerial reconnaissance and traditional on-the-ground trench raiding, identify those key spots in the German defence on this well-established machines ridge, put huge mine charges within them, backfill the entire tunnel, which of course you've got to do because otherwise you're going to blast your own trenches, explosions taking the easiest route to the surface, and then in a synchronized effort at exactly the right moment, these 21 mines, 21 plungers are going to go down. And uh, as a result, 19 mines will go up. We'll probably come back to that in a moment <laughs> and in effect blow the top off the machines ridge. The shock effect is incredible, as well as the pre-planning, the artillery bombardments that have now improved to such an important level, tank involvement. The machines ridge is stormed and captured in a very short period of time with relatively few losses. I don't know how you feel about it, Spence. One of the most successful set-piece battles of the war? I would agree with this. I think this is a masterpiece of planning, preparation, innovation in some ways, because though there's been mining in the First World War, there's been mining in wars going back to antiquity, but this is mining on a scale that nobody's ever seen before, detonating these enormous mines, effectively reshaping the geography. It blows the top off the Messines Ridge. If you visit there now, it's substantially smaller than it was uh, the moments before those mines were detonated. But also, you've, you've hit a great point that's often forgotten. It's not just the mines. Mines are extremely important, but it's the assault that follows. Probably the most sophisticated artillery barrage the British have launched up until this point. It's a, an infantry assault using platoon tactics, supported by tanks in places as well. Tanks have come of age to an extent after their, their promising but dubious debut on the Somme. You've got all the weapons of war that the British can employ, and they're used to great effect. And one of, and this is something that listeners, you might not really be aware of, but Messines Ridge, the Germans know how important Messines Ridge is. It is extremely heavily defended. The Germans don't want to lose Messines Ridge. They know as long as they hold it, there's not really going to be an EAP offensive. It's a, it's a necessary precursor for the British to capture this. And the Germans think it's going to take the British a very long time to do that. In fact, it's captured in about a week. 
and consider the Battle of the Somme, where you've got first day objectives of the 1st of July. They're still not captured by mid-November. Compare and contrast how far the army has come in just a year. And you can really start to see why the British army had some hope going into the Ypres offensive. It's just crushed this strong point. Strong point doesn't do it justice. This anchor stone, in a way, on the Western Front. They've captured it with relatively acceptable casualties. If they can do that, surely they can break out and capture those ridges at Ypres as well. Yes, absolutely. The Messines Ridge is a, is a tremendous success and it leaves the Brits on a high. And as they shift their focus northwards, it really does open up quite a lot of confidence for the summer offensive of 1917, which is going to take place not a million miles away, we should say, from Messines itself. But just to leave on the story of Messines, there's one fantastic quote that I think we have to mention here, Spencer. And it's a, uh, it's a staff officer just before the night of the attack, the attack being put forward by Brits and Canadians, uh, Brits and Australians, I should say. And uh, you might tell me if you know the officer's name, but the, the quote is fantastic. And just before the assault and the mine charges go up, he says, gentlemen, we may not change history tomorrow, but we'll certainly change geography. <laughs> and he was right. I'm afraid off the top of my head, I can't remember the officer's name, but I know the quote and uh, a very accurate description of what was about to happen. Indeed, yeah. And just to finish off with this, actually, because two things that always stick in my mind. We mentioned, you might have noticed there, the disparity in numbers. 21 plungers go down on the morning of the assault in June 1917. 19 explosions go up. There's quite a lot of story about this, about whether it's audible in London, it breaks windows on the south coast, southeast coast of the UK, and so on and so forth. It's certainly a very loud bang, perhaps the loudest man-made explosion in mankind up until that point. There's a bit of debate about that, but it's certainly a big bang. Although two of those mines don't go off. Uh, one of them eventually went off in 1955 in an area called Plogster or Plug Street. Uh, went off uh, in a thunderstorm, believe it or not, after the probably the control cables were hit by lightning, blew up in a field and killed a cow. And the other one still hasn't gone off to this day and it's beneath a, a well-known farm uh, not far from Plug Street and it's still occupied, believe it or not let alone the fact there's a £60,000 mine charge directly underneath the farm. <laughs> but such is the bravery of the Flanders farmers these days. Now, we, of course, now have to turn north, much like the British Army did, and focus in on the Passchendaele Offensive. We do. And just to close on those brave Belgian farmers, I have to say, if I was living in that farm with all those tons of explosive underneath me, whenever a storm cloud came over, I would be exiting at speed, I think. But <laughs> That's why I'm not a stoic Flanders farmer. But going back to Flanders fields and heading a bit north, so the British capture machines ridge, that's a necessary precursor. It secures the southern flank. And in fact, the success of capturing machines ridge is used by the British army who want to launch this offensive as proof. We can do this. Look how comparatively easily we captured machines ridge. If we can capture the three ridges outside Ypres, we're going to reap huge strategic results. And it's a, about a seven-mile advance. Doesn't sound that far, but of course, in the, the grim geographies of the First World War, that's further than the British got on the Somme, for example. But given what's happened at the opening of Arras, what's happened at the scenes, the British High Command actually feels quite confident it can do this. That's to be said, British politicians aren't quite so confident. They're worrying about manpower. They're worrying about the fact the British are going to be fighting the Germans on their own, essentially, the French aren't going to be able to offer much support. There is French support at Third Eat, but there's not going to be a, a French offensive elsewhere, and that the Russians are falling to pieces. But the British military overcomes these doubts, and Douglas Haig, commander-in-chief of the British Army, of course, 
He's really, really optimistic. He's always optimistic. He's what I've described as a compound optimist in the past, but he's especially optimistic on the eve of uh, the third battle of Ypres. But while he's optimistic and he's planning for a major assault, he's envisaging not just capturing the Ypres bridges, but going beyond them, capturing the ports and then liberating Belgium and actually ending on the German border. And there's some really wild elements of his overall plan, including an amphibious landing that's meant to take place on the coast of Belgium as the army breaks out of Ypres. It doesn't have a name at the time. We know it now as Operation Hush, although that was never used at the time. So it's a really ambitious plan. He's really confident. But of course, the Germans are not a passive observer in this game. They've just seen Messines Ridge go down. They're quite horrified by how easily the British have captured that. And that causes them to redouble their efforts and alter their tactics to protect the high ground at Ypres. And it's going to lead to the creation en masse of one of the most recognisable structures we see on the Western Front, Dan. Absolutely. And one of the most recognisable structures you see to this very day on the Western Front, because, of course, pillboxes are going to come into their own in a very big way. In fact, it's worth just highlighting here how big a change it is from traditional trench warfare a la 1915 and 1916 as to what we see eventually when the third Ypres offensive is going to kick off on the 31st of July. In effect, the Germans are fighting in a completely different way. In many senses, you could say trench warfare, and I don't know whether we're overstepping the line here, Spencer, really comes to an end in its kind of formal way by 1917. And that's not something that's often recognised. But in effect, Germans are going to now look for more of a, a strong point, defence, in-depth position. It's going to be the same thing that Allies are going to fail to do the following March when they try to repeat the same process. But what we need to, and we spoke about this a couple of episodes ago, we need to understand the, the general concept here. We said it before, three things certain in life, death, taxes and German counterattacks. And everything in this new defensive system is set up for the counterattack. In effect, what we're looking at is a couple of lines lightly held to break up the Allied advance, followed by a well-timed, determined and pretty vicious counterattack to recapture the ground and churn up the enemy's offensive forces. Yes, it is. And the primary architect of this is a very important German officer called Fritz von Loschberg. And he will actually lend his name to this system, the Loschberg system, as the British call it. And Loschberg's a fascinating character. He's, he always seems to get called upon when there's a massive crisis somewhere in the German army. And he becomes chief of staff of the 6th Army in April 1917. And he's really unimpressed by the German defensive methods they're using. He's been arguing that the Germans need to abandon linear trench lines Really, he starts doing this at the Battle of the Somme, and he bangs the drum for it throughout 1916. He says, if we hold the trenches, the British just pound those trenches into oblivion, and all our troops are stuck in them. What he wants is a much more flexible defensive system. And he, start, he argues that the way it should be is what he calls a checkerboard. So if you think about a, a checkerboard, black and white squares everywhere, with these squares represent strong points and interlocking defences. And these strong points and interlocking defences aren't necessarily designed to stop the British dead. That's what a trench was designed to do. Hold that trench at all costs, the British can't get over it. The checkerboard system says, well, OK, the British are now so heavily armed and so organised, they're going to get into our defences. It's almost inevitable. What we want to do is break them up and disperse them and make their lives as difficult as possible, cause them to lose cohesion. Something you mentioned in the Somme episode, Dan, about the importance of cohesion, making sure people are on your flanks. 
Well, with all that checkerboard of defenses, these pillboxes, strong points, machine gun nests, they break up the attack. One platoon has to stop and try and deal with it. The next platoon moves on. That gets hit in the flank, gets cut off. Think about it. It's very, very difficult to move through this system and maintain cohesion. And that's only part one. The second part you've mentioned before, something we keep referring to, life in life, there's death, taxes, and German counterattacks. And the key element of the Lochberg system is once the British attack has been broken up by these bunkers, pillboxes, and so forth, the British are at a, a state of exhaustion and they're disorganized, then specialist counterattack units are going to come sweeping out and they're going to hit the British when they're at their weakest, their most dispersed. They'll actually, the counterattackers will link up again with the defenders who are holding out in their strong points and their bunkers, drive the British back, inflict lots and lots of casualties on them, and completely stymie the attack. And this is something the British have not seen before. This is quite new and it's quite novel. And it's going to have a serious effect on the British battle in 1917. It is. And uh, and in a slightly tragic way as well, I think a very tragic way in some sense, is one of the problems with uh, assaulting into the Lossberg system when you're not aware of it is at first things look like they're going really well. Because, of course, you've got through the German first line. You've got through the German second line in many cases, thinking, wow, you know, our artillery bombardment's pushing ahead well. Our troops are able to make good headway, as they do once that over-the-top attack starts, just shortly before 4 a.m. on the 31st of July, 1917. German front line is taken very easily in many places, particularly in the northern part of the Ypres salient. Second line is taken without too much trouble. The reason being that a lot of those troops have been moved backwards away from those positions in favour of reinforcing positions further back. Now, pillboxes that we, we've heard about, yes, there are certainly some, in fact, many that are fought with a, a machine gun in them in a kind of traditional way, firing into the flanks of enemy positions. But many of them as well, they're simply there just to allow the troops in the line at that time to take some cover and allow the enemy artillery, which inevitably is coming, to roll over the top of them before they re-emerge into those positions and continue to engage the enemy and take up the fight. In many cases, there are stories of people not firing out of pillboxes at all, but rather reinforcing nearby shell holes, linking those up and creating these islands of defence. It's a little bit, as you were describing it there, Spence, in my mind, it's a little bit like Ney sending his cavalry over the top of Mont-Saint-Jean, the Battle of Waterloo, and you can just see these cavalry units just floating around and being hit from fire from multiple sides as they weave their way through these British cavalry squares. It's the same kind of principle. It's, it, in fact, it's only a, about 50 miles away from where this battle takes place. But the idea is the same. And it's, it's amazing how effective it is in those early days. It is. It takes the British by surprise. They know the Germans are building defences. But pillboxes and those fixed defences are, are difficult to identify from the air, which the British are using for most of their reconnaissance. The Germans go to great efforts to conceal them and they don't fully understand how the Germans are going to use them. They think they're going to use them as part of a, a trench system, a little bit like they used strong points during the Battle of the Somme. But of course, now the Germans are defending this checkerboard system. And you made a great point a moment ago, Dan, about in some cases, they don't even occupy the bunkers. They actually leave the bunkers and they get into what is called the crater fields, these areas that are just full of shell holes, looks like the surface of the moon. And they'll fight from within the shell holes which is unexpected. All the British artillery is concentrated on the pillbox. The attackers are often fixated on the pillbox. That's the obvious target. And then all of a sudden, what's this? German machine gun in a shell hole uh, 500 yards to your right suddenly opens up and takes you in the flank. And not only is that really difficult to deal with as an infantryman, it's very difficult to deal with as an artilleryman too. 
British artillery has got very good at fixing on German positions and smashing them into oblivion. You recall, listeners, if you listen to the Somme episode, there's this huge bombardment on the German position. It's a bit dispersed, and the Germans are sheltering underground. Don't really take many casualties. That's not the case with British bombardments in 1917. Now they're much more destructive. British ammunition is better. Their fuses are much better. There's many more guns of a heavier caliber. They're very good at fixing, finding, fixing, and destroying German positions. But when you've got Germans in a crater field, and they're hiding actually in the shell holes, they're keeping their head down in this ruined wasteland, where do you direct your fire? There's no obvious target. And so the British sweep across this area with their artillery, rolling barrages, which is a close cousin of a creeping barrage where the infantry will be close behind it. But your chances of actually getting a shell into a shell crater where there's German sheltering is actually pretty low. And the Germans, although it's pretty grueling when these barrages pass over them, they don't take too many casualties from these. They're able to hide out, they're able to keep their heads down, and it's only when the British infantry start to appear that they attack. And so it's a really effective, by the sons of 1917, defence system, and it's going to prove an incredibly tough nut to crack. Indeed, and in the opening days, actually, of the of 3rd E, particularly around the Pilkin Ridge, there is fairly significant ground taken, those first and second lines that, in essence, I think are sacrificial from a German point of view to some extent in favour of supporting areas, particularly the, the Langemark line and the areas which have been really heavily defended. The result of which, of course, is that the Allies have to attack. They have to launch their rolling, creeping barrages over no man's land to try and destroy and devastate these German positions. And when they get blunted, when they finally hit those strong resistance points and get driven back out at their most vulnerable moments, what happens next? Well, all of a sudden you've got to launch another creeping barrage and another infantry assault, except this time you're doing it over exactly the same field. And surprise, surprise, it gets a hell of a lot harder to cross a field that's had five or six creeping barrages go across it. This is a real big problem. Combine that with the super high water table in Belgium, the Belgian blue clay, and of course, we can now bring in the word Passchendaele, and the most synonymous thing with that battle, which is of course mud. Isn't it just? And mud is as a close cousin to war. It's amazing to me when you look at the great paintings stretching right back into antiquity, portrayals of war, Trajan's column, right up to the great war art of the 19th century. It's nearly always sunny in these paintings. <laughs> it's nearly always beautiful days and green fields. In reality, mud is always nearby where there's armies on the move. And in Ypres, there is a particular kind of mud. And I know you and I, Dan, we've been on these battlefields many times, and we encounter this mud sometimes. I could say, listeners, the only place on the Western Front where I've ever lost a, a boot, not a shoe, a boot, was actually around Ypres during an extremely rainy tour a few years ago. And this is, of course, in completely relaxed circumstances. Yes, it's wet and rain raining. Yes, it's a bit unpleasant. But the, the mud is, is like something that you can't imagine if you've not experienced it. It is a really deep, nasty kind of mud that will take your shoes clean off. And that's just when it's standard autumn rains. One of the tragedies for the British at Bird Eep is they begin their offensive at the end of July, and on the same day the offensive begins, it begins to rain. And it doesn't stop raining. It rains and it rains and it rains all through August. Now, it's sometimes said that, well, the British should have known this. There's often heavy rains in Flanders in late summer. Well, the British did know this, actually. They'd studied meteorological reports prior to the battle. And that said, well, usually late summer, early autumn, yes, it's a bit wet, but it's not this wet. This was unseasonably heavy rain. 
And you mentioned about the destruction of the battlefield. You know, the rolling barrage has gone backwards and forwards across the ground five, six, maybe even more times. It's absolutely covered with shell holes. Those shell holes fill with water. And we're not talking a little puddle at the bottom. We're talking waist deep, neck deep. It's no exaggeration, Dan, so that these shell holes actually become real hazards to life and limb. 100%. And uh, I think as you were talking there, I was thinking back to the, some of these famous iconic photos of the Western Front in the Great War. And as you rightly say, you know, it's, uh, it, the weather gets very bad in Ypres. I think sometimes we, we take the, those famous photographs that, that I've got in my mind right now, and we extrapolate them to every major battle of the Great War. Uh, of course, that's certainly not the case. But in, if there is one place that you can do that, it's really September, October in Ypres in 1917. To, to just understand how difficult this is, I don't know whether this is apocryphal, but it was a story that I was told a, a little while back. And it was a, a, a officer, I think, who was bringing up, and it was about the time of the Bruton Ridge attack, so it'd be late September 1917, bringing up a fairly mundane message up to the front lines. And he's having to go through tracks that have been laid down, which have traversed parts of this battlefield, because simply that's the best way to get across this ground. There are, you fall into a shell hole in this, uh, this blue clay half a chance of not coming back out again, particularly if you're exhausted and weighed down with, with very heavy kit. So anyway, this officer brings this kind of mundane note up and he says he can hear the cry of wounded in no man's land as he passes the area of ground that's just been taken. He also describes that it's uh, raining heavily at the time. And he says in the time it takes him to come up, drop off that message and then turn around and come back, he says it's noticeably quieter. Mm. And ominously he responds, he follows this up by saying the reason became evident the water had reached the top of the shell holes. That's incredibly powerful. And it sticks in my mind whenever I go to the Ypres salient today. And it's so difficult to reconcile that image that uh, I think many of us will have in our minds right now with what you see on the ground. The reality, of course, is this battle just degenerates into just a, a horrific slogging match. And, and let's, let's not forget, it rains on the Germans too. The, there's plenty of shell fire on the Germans too. It's no picnic for anybody in this area. But spare a thought for the infantry that have got to go over the top and try and assault a position. We spoke about it previously, the, the race to the parapet. Well, how are you going to race if you've got a couple of stone of mud clinging to either boot, you're wearing a heavy pack, and you're crawling in now of, of flooded shell holes? There's no possibility of making any meaningful, speedy advance. You've got to rely on your artillery like your life depends upon it and hope that the enemy are uh, off their game that day. Yes, you do. And this is something that of all the battles in the First World War, perhaps even all the battles I've read about full stop, we can, I certainly, I often get an emotional reaction reading about these battles, thinking about it, creating the image in my mind's eye. But there's a few images of Passchendaele written images that just capture something. One is a, a quote, it's from somebody, oh, I believe it, if I remember, right, 16th um, Division, Irish Division. He's talking about a bombardment in August. You can see the bombardment falling on the German lines. He knows he's going to go over and attack. And he says that the, it's so wet, it's so muddy, it's so rain-slicked, he said, that the front line looked like a storm at sea because so much water and mud was being thrown in the air. And he said that it, there was almost tidal waves of mud and water splashing over you, even in the British trenches such as they were. Can you imagine that? It's unbelievable difficulties to advance in that. And there's also a quote about the mud itself. I mentioned I lost a boot. Oh, I managed to retrieve it, but I had a boot taken clean off my foot 
around EAP a few years ago. There's a quote from a, a Royal Engineer officer in the Imperial War Museum sound archive called, um, I believe called Brian Frailing, and he talks about the mud and he said, just to quote this, he says, it was a curious kind of sucking kind of mud. It drew at you, not like a quicksand, but like a real monster. And that, listeners, is absolutely true. It really does draw you down. And as you say, Dan, imagine trying to advance over this with your equipment, with your kit, with your guns, with your grenades. You're doing that. You're splashing through the mud. If you fall flat on your face, you're going to start sinking into that mud almost instantly. If you're wounded and you can't move, you're going to start sinking into that mud. There's a real danger of you drowning, as you've mentioned here. And in front of you, of course, there's Germans who are fighting from pillboxes, who are fighting from shell holes. Yes, it's very hard for them as well, but they have the advantage they don't have to move in the same way that you do. And asking soldiers, as the British Army did time and time again, to make these assaults through the mud, through the water, into the teeth of German machine gun and artillery fire. Well, the British Army can take a, a lot. It's got high morale through nearly all of the First World War, high endurance. But by mid-August, even the British Army is starting to get exhausted uh, with these, these offences. It just seems so futile to fight in this constant downpour. And in fact, there's actually a possibility the battle gets called off in August 1917. Certainly not out of the question. And, uh, you know, as you, were, as you were talking there, Spencer, I was just thinking about, you know, there's the same argument that we can make about 1916 that we can certainly make about 1917 in terms of when's the right time to end the battle. The one thing that sticks in my mind from a, a, if you like, a personal perspective, not my own, but from those guys on the ground, is that they make any progress at all in certain instances because the battle does go on and successes are made. The first, that first ripple in the in the ponds, uh, the Pilkin Ridge is captured and the Broodsim Ridge is approached and eventually captured. It's worth pointing out here as well. Fighting in ridges adds another dimension because the Germans almost inevitably are at the top of a hill on a ridge. So the British Army always feels like it's fighting uphill. It's one of those things that's regularly reported on by troops in the front line. But there's a, also, we're talking about why the, um, why the battle might get caught off here, might get called off. There's also a little bit of a no man's land from a strategic perspective as well here. Because... Calling off the fight when you've only captured the first of those three ridges or you're halfway to the second ridge just isn't going to do it. No, it's not. And there's wider implications beyond just this battle. Bear in mind, the battle begins in August. German U-boats have been ravaging Allied shipping from February 17 onwards. Although they, this, the rate of sinkings of Allied shipping is starting to fall in late the late part of the summer, it's still dangerously high. So you've got to keep fighting for the sake of the Navy in that respect. Maybe if you get through to those ports, you can help the Navy's war. You've got to keep fighting for the sake of your allies. French aren't going to be able to launch any major offensives. Russia's really falling to pieces by August 1917. It's clear it's probably not going to last till the end of the year. You've got to try and take some pressure off it as best you can. The Italians aren't going anywhere. Um, they're attacking again into the Alps. They're not having any success. And if the British call off the offensive in the summer of 1917... That looks dangerously like the Allies have been defeated. French can't fight, can't attack, the Russians can barely hold on, and now the British have attacked and it's failed and they've called it off. The psychological damage of that is thought to be really dangerous. It'd be very encouraging for the Germans, very demoralizing for the Allies. And actually, in the background, something that we tend to forget is the Americans. 
And the Americans are not formally an ally of the Allies. They actually list themselves as an associated power, though they fight alongside them. And US President Woodrow Wilson is really keen to bring the war to an end. He's proposing all kinds of peace deals. The Germans are quite keen on because it seems to be a way for them to get out of the difficult strategic situation they're in. And if the British call off the offensive in August 17, as well as being a disastrous blow to morale, it might encourage Wilson and the Germans to say, nobody can win this war, let's sit down and do a deal. And so there's a lot of strategic pressure weighing on the British there. But I have to say, I think the main driver for this is actually Douglas Haig. Described him before, compound optimist, always optimistic. He thinks, well, the army's suffering, the British army's suffering, the Germans are suffering too. We need to keep attacking. But his subordinate, who's actually leading this battle, Hubert Goff, one of Haig's favourite commanders, I'm sure we'll discuss him in future episodes, he actually says in mid-August, says, we can't do this, we've had it. And so Haig changes the bowler, to put it in a, a cricketing term, and he brings in one of the more highly respected commanders on the British Army on the Western Front. He does. He brings in our old friend from the Messines Ridge, General Plumer, who is going to be making his way up to the Ypres Salient. He's going to be taking over. He's going to be picking up the mantle, hopefully carrying the ball a few yards further. And we don't really mean that many yards further. It's worth pointing out, by the time he comes into the battle, the Passchendaele Ridge is within range. Now, there's, there's also, to my mind at least, another if you like, a, a tactical uh, perspective that we can look at this from. And that's with regards to what the experience of the BEF has been stuck down in that bowl-like Ypres salient for the previous two winters. The winter of 1914, the winter of 1915, in fact, the winter of 1916, none of those have been fun to be down there overlooked by German artillery for an entire winter where you can't move in freezing cold ground with a very high water table. Nobody really wants to go into the winter of 1917 stuck down in that low ground. And there's another driver to say, okay, well, let's go on and push on and capture that third ridge, that Passchendaele Ridge. Now, Plumers, it's fair to say, I think, Spencer's also got some favourite troops. In fact, the BEF in general has some favourite troops. The only people who don't, who probably don't feel like they're favoured are the people actually doing the fighting because we see the same, generally speaking, the same units come into action time and again. And they're generally called in when the going's tough and something significant needs to be done. And these are some of the premier units within the British Army at the time. Ironically, a good chunk of them are not British. We are, of course, talking about Canadian troops and Australian New Zealanders, amongst others. We are, and... They, this, these are fascinating case studies about how elite troops start to develop their own identities. One of the advantages the Canadians and the Australians have over British Corps, a corps, by the way, is about three divisions. A division is about 18,000 men. The advantage the Australians and the Canadians have is they're homogenous. So whereas the British rotate divisions through corps, which has a lot of administrative advantages, it means that the individual British corps really have their own identities. They're really an administrative organisation for the handling of divisions. But the Australians and the Canadians are not. They always have the same divisions within them. And this means that they start to almost become proto-national armies. They're a core within the British Army, but they're also Canada and Australia's national armies. They have their own identities. They even have their own ways of doing things, some slight differences in approach slight differences in attitudes. They're highly motivated, they're highly experienced, and it's not so far to actually say that they're almost considered the closest the British Army probably has to shock troops by 1917. 
There's also some very good British divisions, I should add. We'll probably get into those in subsequent episodes. But the temptation to use the Australians and the Canadians a lot is always there for the British commanders. The problem is the Canadian and Australian commanders, they're also serving their own national governments. And they can appeal, in fact, to their national governments and ask for better treatment or ask for changes. And for the British, who, of course, are calling on the Canadians and the Australians a lot, and it's expending a huge amount of Canadian and Australian manpower, that's a difficult line to walk as well. And in fact, the um, Australians in particular are able to say um, in mid-1970, we're not serving under Hubert Goff anymore because he's treated us extremely badly at a battle called Bullecourt in the spring of 17. So they do have some political power. Um, but the temptation to use them as the, the battering ram for the British offensives is, is almost overwhelming. And I think that's why the Canadians get picked to try and carry that last ridge, which is, of course, the Passchendaele Ridge itself. Absolutely. The Australians, as we know, have been brought in beforehand and uh, they've fought themselves to a, a pretty bloody standstill, actually. and going to be largely out of action for some time following the capture of the Broodsind Ridge, at which point the Canadians are brought in to try and grab that final piece of high ground and hopefully bring the battle to an end with something that you could possibly argue would constitute success. We'll maybe touch on that in a moment. But of course, for the poor Canadians on the ground, advancing over churned up ground, uphill, cold weather, freezing cold weather, by the way, by the time we get to late October, early November, it's a very, very tough ask. And I don't know, Spencer, whether you think that anybody with a Canadian uniform who found themselves in the Ypres Salient in 1917 would have uh, been considering themselves to be any kind of special shock troops or that had any, any impact on their mindset at all. I think they'd much rather have not been there and you can't blame them for it. In fact, on a, if you like a, a more recent level, even looking at this story and quite often we see this over on our, our main YouTube channel over at Battle Guide. One of the things that comes up quite regularly is that the British treatment and uh, in particularly high commands treatment of Canadian and Australian troops is horrific, throwing away lives because things like Passchendaele occur. The truth is, and I think you've touched on it just there, the reason the Canadians and the Australians are brought in because they're the guys who can get the job done. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a pretty horrific way. You know, these... These excellent troops are making their way up to the front line. They are taking huge casualties, but they're also probably the right people to be doing it. That's right. And something that strikes me about the First World War from a, both a British and a German perspective, actually, is that elite formations, especially divisional formations, and both sides have divisions that are considered elite. One of the, the striking things is the casualties these elite formations take because they're used again and again. And I'd love to actually get into this in a podcast in the future about what makes an elite division in the First World War. Is it a mindset? Is it tactics and training? Is it a combination of the two? But you're absolutely right that the, the reason certain divisions get used again and again and take huge casualties is they're considered the best for the job. And you're not going to send a weaker division or a lesser trained division against it. But that's no comfort whatsoever. I think you made a great point there. If you're a Canadian in the or October, November of 17, shivering in the mud, I don't think I'd be thinking of myself as elite at all. I'm thinking, I, gosh, I hope this is over, uh, over soon. But one point to actually make about the British offensive after Plumer takes over is the British start to change their methods as well. Because 
We've mentioned the Lossberg system and how that's really perfectly organized to break up the standard British attack, but the British have got a few tricks in their repertoire. And going back to a cricketing analogy, they've gone from bringing on a, uh, a seamer coming in an enormous pace from the pavilion end to bringing on a, a slightly trickier spinner who's going to try and do something that takes the Germans by surprise and puts them in a bit of difficulty because Plumer is a, a real proponent of a method we've mentioned before on the podcast, and that's bite and hold which is a style of tactics that's almost perfectly designed to unhinge the Lossberg system. That's right. And we can just, by way of kind of re-understanding that, let's just go back and understand exactly what is meant by bite and hold. And I think uh, for, for once in the Great War, actually, it, it's quite common sense. You bite and you hold. It's one of those things that actually we can, we can understand. It's limited gains advances. It's holding on, digging in. Particularly, this is particularly effective when you have when you throw German counterattacks into the mix because it's the one thing, of course, that we know that Germans are planning to do. And one of the things that the British do, particularly at the start of the Third Battle of Ypres around the Pilkin Ridge, is advance, advance, advance until you hit the main German line. And it's only then at that point can you start digging in. So you keep going as far as you think you can get, then dig in. Well, guess what? The counterattack's on its way by then. So actually taking more bite-sized chunks, yes, it's absolutely gruelling work. It means destroying the ground even more than you would do on a, a limited but fairly rapid advance. It's got its problems, but also certain places it can be very effective. And you could argue that the last capture, or the last point of the Passchendaele Ridge to be captured towards the end of the battle, is a, I think could be argued as a real success for bite and hold. That's absolutely true. And bite and hold, it was the brainchild of Henry Rawlinson, who featured in the Somme episode. He coined the term. And it's got a lot going for it. It's very resource intensive. It's very slow. But for a battle like Passchendaele, where you can't go fast anyway because of the nature of the German defences and the mud and the, the wet, it works. Plumer also has an advantage in the sense that the, the weather dries out in September and it gives him a chance to really put this method into, into practice. And also, it catches the Germans by surprise. They're used to the British trying to push right through this system and then being hit by their counterattacks. But bite and hold catches the Germans out because the British make an advance and then they stop and invite that German counterattack. And as the German specialist counterattack units who are highly trained and well-equipped, they start emerging to counterattack. Instead of finding disorganized and disrupted British troops, instead they find British troops who are dug in, their Lewis guns are in place, and there's an enormous British artillery bombardment comes down as well and smashes the attackers before they really get very far. And these methods, certainly the first few times it's tried, really catch the Germans out and inflict terrible losses on the counter-attacking troops, who are the kind of troop that Germany can't really afford to lose. It's going back to that idea of elite troops again. And Germany is losing some of its best men trying to hold on to these ridges. And in fact, in the latter stages of um, the battle, the Germans actually wonder, can we even hold on here? Because they don't seem to have an answer to bite and hold. British are just chewing their way through the position. The serious consideration in the German high command about we abandon these ridges and we fall back to the next defensive position. But the weather comes in again because Plumer's had this window of good weather in September, but by October it starts to rain and it just doesn't stop. And that brings us, of course, to the last tragic act, which is the Canadian lunge towards Passchendaele. It does indeed. And uh, I think before we just touch on that final thing, I think that there's maybe a large question that we need to ask here, and that's should this have taken place in the first place? Should the battle have been called off? Where exactly does that line get drawn? 
Because something you just raised that I think is really important, Spence, because I think far too often in the Great War and talking about the war on the Western Front, we think about things in terms of territorial gains. And I think both you and I have probably done this a little bit too much through through this uh, episode as we go through it. But is territory actually the objective? In some in some cases, yes. And you could argue there's a very specific and finite limit to the at least the ridge capturing operation. But what you mentioned there I thought was really interesting, and that's the idea of the Germans losing troops that they simply cannot afford to lose or they cannot easily replace. Because not only do you have this uh, this geographical battlefield going on, you've got the, the bigger and the broader numbers game running at exactly the same time. So which of those metrics, or is it a combination of the two, do we take to actually understand, well, what constitutes success at battles like Passchendaele? What a phenomenal question. Goodness, we could have an entire podcast <laughs> on what does a victory look like on the Western Front? And it, that in itself speaks to the difficulty of gauging victory and defeat in the First World War. Because as you say, the territorial gains, 1914 and 1918 aside, are very small. But the casualties and the damage inflicted on the enemy can be extraordinarily high. And so is it worth it fighting a battle that's going to inflict heavy attrition on people? Especially for the Allies, because ultimately the Allies have more manpower than the Germans. They can, in the grim metrics of war, they can afford these casualties. Well, yes, in a, in a grueling way, although that's a very difficult sell for the politicians. But I think from a Passchendaele perspective, from a third eat perspective, I don't think that's foremost in Douglas Haig's mind when he's launching this. I think that he still hopes he can get a breakthrough until very, very late in the day. And his assault onto the Passchendaele Ridge really puts the British Army in a relatively weak position in some respects. It's a position that can't really be held. The entire ridge is never captured. Canadians get onto it. They capture Passchendaele itself. Once a village, now just some bricks in the mud. There's a night attack to try and storm it at the very end of November. That fails too. And so the British are left really in an, on, an untenable salient on the ridge. And the Douglas Haig, I think, wants to renew that battle in early 1918. But by then, he has lost a lot of political credibility. Russia's tumbled out the war. The Italians have been smashed at the Battle of Caporetto. The Allies' war effort has swung once more. And so the British are left with a, with a what to show for it, really. Well, they've captured two out of the three ridges, but that third ridge seems as far away as it did in some respects when the battle began. But on the other hand, the Germans have suffered too. And they Germans can take some comfort in the fact they've held the line, but what a way to hold it. Casualties at the battle, about equal. Somewhere in the region, about a quarter of a million casualties each side. And the exhaustion in the troops, I can only begin to imagine at. It, a grueling battle, the like of which perhaps is the, is never seen elsewhere on the Western Front. The mud, the cold, the nature of it, unusually grueling. The thing that sticks out as well is is what comes next, because this isn't going to be a particularly pleasant winter for anybody. But of course, very quickly after this short winter break comes an enormous German assault that's going to be hitting those same exhausted troops across, in many cases, those that same piece of ground. Certainly when we talk about the final act in the coming German spring offensive, and so when you get to the end of, of Passchendaele and uh, the Third Battle of Ypres as a whole, to, to sum it up, I think, is a very tricky thing to do. We know today that there was plenty more coming. There was, a, in fact, a storm brewing out on the Eastern Front, which is going to eventually deploy on the West. 
I don't know, Spence, what do you think in terms of summing up this battle? I mean, from the personal point of view, you've got the, the individual on the ground who are almost exclusively scathing of of having to afford it in the first place. And certainly for the families who lost loved ones, of which there's no small number, as you rightly point out, you know, Passchendaele is a, is a, a name of nightmares. From the Allied perspective, from a, an Allied strategic perspective, is it anything less than that? What a great question. And the debate about this is actually still live. It's still continuing because in 1917, you'd have been hard pressed to find anybody except perhaps Douglas Haig on the British side who felt that there'd been a worthwhile sacrifice at Passchendaele. Passchendaele is unique for the British Army. And by that, I also mean the British Empire Army, Commonwealth forces on the Western Front, because at the end of this battle, the army is truly depressed. Morale noticeably falls, and it falls for a host of reasons. One, the sense that even with all the new tactics, weapons, and machinery, the army still cannot get through the German trenches. The war's going to go on forever. There's no way to break this. And secondly, because you've asked tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men to fight in conditions that are completely impossible to actually fight in. It's miraculous the British achieve what they achieve in many respects. But the soldiers, the officers, they know what they've gone through. And they begin to lose faith, not only in the fact that the war can be won, but also that they're being commanded in an intelligent and sensible way. Now, this never turns into a mutiny on the scale of the French, but the army is depressed over the winter of 17 and 18. Perhaps even elements of the army are really badly shaken. And we'll see some of those, in fact, when we look at 1918, because many of the veterans of Passchendaele end up then facing the German offensive in the spring. And politically, the British are absolutely appalled by what's happened. And in fact, something that's not widely known, because I think Passchendaele has been replaced by the Somme now in British popular and public memory as the epitome of a, a First World War battle. But right up until the 1960s, it was Passchendaele that was held as the exemplar battle for a British audience. It only got replaced by the Somme in the 60s and 70s for reasons perhaps we'll look at in the future. And I think even now, um, aside from the Somme, if you were to ask a person on the street, can you name a First World War battle? I would probably say they'd say Gallipoli, Somme and Passchendaele. It's still got a weight that weighs somewhere in the British conscious and the indeed the wider British conscious. So it's difficult to speak of a victory there. That said, to use my favourite line, it's complicated because the Germans come out of this battle as well, absolutely exhausted. And although Ludendorff, commander of the German forces in the West, he describes it as the greatest defensive victory the Germans ever won. One with big strategic results, they retain the Belgian ports. It's come at a really unsustainable cost because the casualties to some of the best German troops have been very high. And worryingly for the Germans, they don't really have an answer to bite and hold. The Germans aren't stupid. They know the weather has helped them. Perhaps it's even saved them. And that if the weather had been more reasonable through August, September and into October, they might well have been pushed off those ridges. They've And think about the German position here. They fought from trenches for uh, 14, 15 and 16. That's stopping working by early 17. They've moved to the Lossberg system. That works for a while. But now the British have countered it again. And from a German perspective, the long-term prospects are pretty bleak. If Passchendaele's a victory for the Germans, it's the kind of victory you can't have too many of or you're going to lose the war. So assigning victory and defeat at Passchendaele, incredibly difficult. And I think that speaks to just the difficulty of assigning victory and defeat in the First World War in general. That's a great summary. And uh, I think that really rounds up that very well indeed. As you were talking there, I, and you mentioned the 
ongoing situation as we turn into 1918. I had in my mind this little timer just appear in the top right corner of my screen, which is very much going to be the case for the German army because they're really gonna they're really gonna roll the dice in 1918. There is very much a clock ticking because, of course, way off to the west. As we roll into 1918, you have huge numbers of U.S. servicemen, the Doughboys, making their way out to the Western Front. And then far off to the east, on the other side, you have an Eastern Front, which no longer has a huge requirement for millions of German soldiers. Those two things are going to come together on the Western Front, and they're going to set out for an incredible next episode, which is going to cover the famous Spring Offensive. So guys, that brings us to the end of our latest podcast. We hope you found it really interesting. If I can just finish with a quick request of you, if you're watching us on anything like Spotify or Apple Play Store or right here on YouTube, wherever you might be, it really, really helps us to share this podcast with as many people as possible. If you just drop us a quick review, let us know what you think. There's a rating system that you can use. Give us a quick comment. Share this with your friends and family. We, Spencer and I, Absolutely love talking to you about this fascinating subject and we hope to continue to do so in the future. So do please take a moment, drop in a quick review wherever you're listening. It's been another fascinating episode with you, Dan. I've really enjoyed discussing this controversial, bloody and, and muddy battle at Ypres. And of course, Ypres will then play a big role in the next battle we're going to look at, which is the German Spring Offensive beginning in March 1918 and roaring through the entire spring of that year. As Germany, as you've said earlier, rolls the dice, tries to win the First World War with one last heave of its armies, destroying the British and the French before the Americans can arrive in strength. It's an incredible period of combat that doesn't look anything like any other period of the First World War, and we're looking forward to discussing it with you next time. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. <laughs> don't know what, I'm, I'm trying to think of a word and I cannot get it in my mind. But there is, remind me, there is a great quote I'm going to mention. <laughs>